Well, this past year together as a church family, we looked at what it means to be just that, a family of God. Instead of just big business or an institution or some box up here on the hill, and we look together at what it means to do your work to the glory of God, regardless of what it is. Doesn't matter what it is. There's not just certain work that, is, that is, has dignity and that God's excited about. To do your work to the glory of God, whatever it is. But if we're going to be a church family that impacts our community and our world around us, we're going to have to be a church filled with people who have a gospel-shaped attitude about money. Money. And the Bible talks a lot about money. And please know I'm not doing this series because, oh my goodness, we're limping along. We didn't meet budget. We, we hacked three staff as we head into the new year, so now it's time for a giving series. That's not how Brad Bigney does this. God has provided for us the 22 years that I've been here abundantly. I speak on this occasionally. And if you're new and you're thinking, oh, for crying out loud, it's on money. The church is always talking about money. No, it's not. I haven't, I haven't done a series like this in nine years. So there. Hmm. So we're not always talking about money. But just like we talk about sex here, come back for that. You'll like that. I'm also the pastor that talks about sex. Why would I not talk about money and here's what I think is interesting. People get more uncomfortable when I talk about money than they do sex. You're like, oh, I don't want to hear that. But whatever the Bible teaches, I want to teach you. And there's a whole lot in here about money because life involves money. And so here's the thing I want you to understand. We're going to look at God's word for the next couple of weeks and see what it says because here's the deal. Money is not a sin. Money is not bad. Money can do great good to the glory of God. One of the most misquoted verses you'll find in the Bible, you're gonna hear it today from this passage. What do you hear? Oh, money is the root of all evil. An older sweet lady next to me on a plane last week as I was flying to Oregon to teach said it. I didn't correct her, I let it go. I let a lot of things go. She's like, yeah, that's because money is the root of all evil. You're gonna see in this passage the love of money. And it doesn't even say it's the root. It says it's a root of all kinds of evil. But money can do great good. It can also destroy you. So think about electricity. Are you grateful for electricity? I am. Lights, heat, air, big screen TV this afternoon for NFL playoffs. Yes. Glad I can watch it. I need electricity. And I want to feel warm while I do it. I don't want to microwave some popcorn. I mean, I'm grateful for electricity. It can also kill you if you don't know what you're doing with it, right? Great good, very dangerous. That's what the Bible teaches about money. Great good, also very dangerous if you don't know how to handle it. In fact, the passage we're going to look at calls it a trap or a snare. So we're going to dig into this passage. Go ahead and mark it when you get there because we're going to dig into this passage for the next three weeks because there's so much good here. But we're going to find out what does God say about how you can use it for the glory of God and your own good instead of abusing it to your own destruction. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. And as you turn there, let me acknowledge something. Some of you tensed up, I'm sure, already because I've said the word money on Sunday right here. I want to recognize, I know there's... There's, there's some of you here, you've lost jobs, you've taken pay cuts, you've had to adjust and scale down. I know that in a church family this size. 
But I also know there's still some of you that God is blessing with incredible financial resources. Incredible financial resources still in these last days in times like this. Everybody hadn't lost their job. Everybody hadn't had to scale down. He's blessing. In fact, God gives, did you realize this? God gives some people the gift of making money. You're like, God, bring it. He gives some, but you know why? Not so that they would have so much more than the rest of us, so that they could be a blessing, so that they could be a channel, so that, and then there's a whole lot of you, you've been waiting for this category, you're like, you still haven't named me. Whole lot of you somewhere in the middle between I have no job, I live in a cardboard box, and I have the gift of making money. But here's what I want you to understand. Don't sit here and think, I hope those rich people are listening. Whoever you are and wherever you are on this spectrum, I believe God has a word for you about your money. Doesn't matter how much you have or don't have, don't you wanna know how to use what you do have in the right way? Word for you about money. So now follow along, First, First Timothy chapter six, verse six. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich end up on television shows, well, they do, right? Ponzi schemes and all that. I mean, there, there is a serious problem of the human heart. Those who desire, this verse is talking about those shows you watch. How does it happen that someone gives their money and says you're gonna get a 33% return every month? Because the human heart says, yes, make lots, make it fast. If it sounds too good to be true, it is. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Here it is, the most misquoted verse in the Bible, verse 10. For the love of money, and it doesn't even say is the root, like it's the biggest source of evil. No, is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows, but you, O man or woman of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith. Now Paul is not changing subjects. If you think, oh, he was talking about money and also he's talking about the fight of faith, stay with me. You have to have faith to believe that what God says is right versus what you're Flesh wants and what the world is doing, right? It's a fight of faith to not get sucked right down the path of what our world is doing regarding their stuff and their money. It's a fight of faith. You'll have to put your faith in God's word and say no to your flesh. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. Now Paul's about to do something that I love. I love a lot of the things about Paul, but here's one. You'll find in his letters these moments of doxology where Paul can't just glibly go by Jesus Christ without a little moment of worship. It's like he throws down his quill pen, lifts his hands, I just said Jesus. 
I'm gonna have to praise him for a minute before I go on. That's what he's doing here. That you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until Lord Jesus Christ appearing, verse 15, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power, amen. Then he says, a further thought about your money. That's how good Jesus is. He says, command those who are rich in this present age to give it all away and live a poverty. No, it is not a sin to be rich. It's just a question of what you do with all of it. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. We're gonna unpack those verses for the next several weeks. Today, all I wanna do is look at verses six to eight. That's it. Verses six to eight, because I think there's enough to chew on right there. Here's the question I wanna answer. What does God tell us to do so that we can keep from stepping into the money trap that our world is so snared in all around us. What I want you to see from this passage today is that God calls us to live simply by cultivating contentment. Those two things go, and notice how I worded that. You'll have to work at contentment. It will not be automatic. By cultivating, leaning into, choosing You'll never live simply if you're not cultivating contentment. We're gonna unpack it a little more today. But as soon as I use those two words, simply and contentment, I know we are swimming upstream against our culture that just breeds complexity and discontentment. Complexity and discontentment. So this is as radical as anything else that we address from God's word. Upside down, backwards, different than we would ever think. But oh, so freeing, so worth it. So here's what I wanna show you. I think from these three verses, I can show you three ways that Paul gets us moving in the right direction. What would you do if you want to cultivate contentment and live more simply? Here's the first, number one. Learn to celebrate what you do have instead of focusing on what you don't. Learn to celebrate what you do have instead of focusing so much on what you don't. Look at verse six again. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Why does he start verse six with the word but? Well, because in verses three to five, he was just warning us about false teachers who wanna use the gospel, Jesus, Christianity as a means to promote themselves and to pad their own lives. They didn't have personal Learjets, but they had super nice chariots. Nothing new under the sun, huh? Right? Verses three to five is talking about someone taking the gospel and Jesus and this message and seeing if I can promote my own brand and pad my own life. Nothing new under the sun. You can see them on television this afternoon if you'd like to on cable Christian television. It's all about if you'll just do this and... And so he's saying in contrast to that, they're trying to make gospel great gain personal financial gain. So in verse six he says, but godliness 
with contentment is great gain. The, word, the English translators chose to start that first with the word but, but it's actually the Greek word de that is better translated. It's an intensive emphasis. Really, a better translation would be indeed. So here's what they're doing. Indeed, godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, Paul's saying they're correct. Godliness is gain. It's just not the kind of gain they're thinking about. In fact, Paul takes it and ramps it up and sticks the word mega in front of it. Oh yeah, they're, they're trying to make it a source of gain. It's great gain. It's mega gain. The Greek word mega, it's great gain if it's coupled with contentment. And Paul has in mind a different kind of gain or wealth that our world can't fathom, has no category for, because Paul's letters, if you read the letters of Paul, Paul's letters and Paul's mind, you could see it in that little doxology, now praise to him who is immortal and approachable, the king of kings, honor, blessing, glory. Paul's letters and Paul's heart and mind are so flooded with the riches of knowing Christ and of our eternal inheritance that cannot be shaken or taken from you. That's what he has in mind. Oh yeah, indeed, godliness with contentment is great game. But Paul's reminding us, until you, until you bump contentment up against whatever you have, it'll never be enough. Godliness with contentment is great gain. See, here's, here's the lie. We always think, how much do you need? Just a little bit more. And here's someone who has 10,000, you have 100,000. They both answer the same way. The 100,000 person doesn't say, I don't know what to do with all this. How much do you think you need? When could you be content? <gasps> Just a little bit more. That's the human heart. That's what we're up against. Until you bump contentment up against whatever it is you do have. Don't talk to me about what you don't have. It's so funny. People are always like, oh, if I had blah, 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 I'd give a lot away. Well, you don't. Let's talk about what you do have. Well, it's not enough. That's what everybody thinks. Welcome to the sinful human default setting of our hearts. Godliness with contentment is great gain. I was struck by an article last year. March 2017, I ran across an article online that was titled this, I was a multi-millionaire by 27. Pretty exciting, huh? Subtitle, here's what I learned. Now, that's not what I thought the subtitle would be, right? You would think the subtitle would be, let me tell you about my blissful life now. No, that's not how he subtitled it because that's not what he experienced. This guy's not a Christian. Listen to what Duncan Riash says. He says this. In the early 2000s, I was an early employee at a Silicon Valley tech company that designs and markets cutting-edge computer processing chips. When I started, there were a few dozen other people. When I left, there were thousands. I was a computer processor engineer, architect, and manager. The company is now one of the largest and most successful in the world. I made millions of dollars. I'm not even sure how much it was. I think it might have been around five million. But this might surprise you. Just two paragraphs later, here's what he says. But money doesn't make you happy. 
And it doesn't make you content either. I remember getting to the end of a particularly challenging but satisfying project, putting my feet up on my desk, taking a deep breath, and realizing that I had it all at 27. I had the fancy million-dollar house in Mountain View where Google is based. I had a house in another country that I owned outright. I had the luxury cars that I purchased with cash. I had the attractive wife at home, even from our work series. When you think, I wish I felt respected at work. I wish I could do what I want. I wish I could pursue projects that interest me. He had that. Listen to what he says next. I was highly respected where I worked. I had freedom to work on whatever I chose. I had a very high salary, lucrative stock options, and more money than I knew what to do with. But I felt anxious and dissatisfied. That's what the Bible teaches. We keep thinking, oh, no, 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 no. Let me be that anxious. Try me, God. Bring it. But I felt anxious and dissatisfied. I learned firsthand that once our basic needs are taken care of, the level of contentment and happiness we experience has nothing to do with how much wealth we have. In fact, wealth can actually make life worse. We can use wealth to distract us from our deeper issues by spending money on things we don't need or worrying about losing our wealth. Life might also get a lot more complicated with wealth. You're saying, God, complicate mine this year. Huh? He says, I've become aware that I tend to worry about not having enough money in the future and that this fear has been with me all of my life. It is not correlated with my net equity or my net cash flow. You hear what he's saying? He's saying millions of dollars didn't solve his deepest, most troubling issues in life, one of which is, one of our greatest is fear. Money doesn't solve that. You can be afraid because you don't have enough. You can be afraid after you have a lot that you're going to lose it. And whether you have real friends and what is going on and am I investing right. And fear, 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 fear. I hope you realize one of the biggest reasons we don't give away more is not stinginess. It's fear. We're going to need that. When, when, you know, when you're first getting started, I don't have much. I need this. Oh, we just got married. We're trying to get in our first house. I need this. Oh, we've got young kids. We haven't even gone to, into college and braces yet. I'm gonna need this. Oh, 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 the kids are gone, but we're getting older and have I? You can find a reason your entire life to stay anxious and fearful and not giving. Your whole life. That's what the human heart can do. Fear. That's our sinful default setting so that we have to lean into cultivating contentment. Choose it and learn it. Don't turn there for the sake of time, but Paul's own personal testimony, the Apostle Paul that's writing this, he has another place that he gives us some insights on this about himself. I want you to know, Apostle Paul had the equivalent of a PhD education. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the top, top leader, educator in his day. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul knew what it was like to have a lot. And Paul knew what it was like to have little. So in Philippians chapter four, verses 10 to 13, he says, he's, it's actually a thank you letter. He's thanking them for sending him a gift, but he says, you know what, I thank you for the gift, but I have learned 
how to abound, and I've learned to be abased. I've learned to have a lot, and I've learned to go hungry. He uses the word learn two times. I had to learn it, and then he says this in verse 13. Some of you are gonna recognize this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, some of you just heard Philippians 4.13 for the first time in its original context. It gets waved around all the time at a ball game, basketball game. I'm about to do something hard. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We're going to win. Happy for you. I've never had a Christian yet, ever, come to me and in the context of fearful money finances, I don't think we have enough, say to me, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, ever. It's always used in other, it was originally written in the context of, I don't think I have enough, I don't have what I used to have, but I can do all things, I can have a lot, I can have a little, because Christ in me. Strength. That was Paul's own testimony. He said two times, I learned, for I have learned how to abound and how to be abased. He had to learn it. We're gonna have to learn it. Number one, celebrate what you do have instead of focusing so much on what you don't. Number two, we're talking about ways to cultivate contentment. Never let what used to be a luxury in your life get redefined as a necessity. Oh, and notice what I didn't say. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I didn't just say, make sure your life never begins to have things that would be considered a luxury in someone else's life or in another country. There's a bit of this around. It's mainly on blogs and with 20-something years old, there's a poverty theology. I don't know if you've run into it, that it's wrong to have anything. It's wrong to have a car. It's wrong to have a house. It's wrong to save money. It's wrong to have a business that makes money. That is not biblical. And I wanna say to these 20-something-year-olds with their little backpack, backpacking across America, saying, I'm living the simple life, they would starve if their parents hadn't worked hard and had money, they were wiring them. So shut up with the simplicity. And if you don't start making some money, your children will be in a box. So this, this only works because somebody else worked and had a business and made money and set some aside and didn't spend it all on themselves to enable you to say that you're gonna put on display a simple life to all of us. So be encouraged. If you have a business and you're making money and you're employing people and you even have some luxuries, it is not a sin. There you go. But here's what I am saying. Do hear what I am saying. As you move through life and there begin to be things that it, you used to, you couldn't do that. You couldn't eat out there. You couldn't travel there. You couldn't drive that. You couldn't live there because it was a luxury. Here's what the human heart starts to do. As soon as it's ours, when it's not ours, we see it as a luxury. As soon as it's ours on a regular basis, we downgrade it and redefine it as a necessity and say things like this, I can't imagine living without that. You used to, and other people still do. So just keep thanking God for it and and calling it what it is, it's a luxury. There's so much that we don't have to have, but, but, he, but we redefine it. So there's two problems with, quote, the blessing of more money. It doesn't always happen, but it's, it's fairly common that as you move through life and you get older and you get greater skills or you become more successful and you have more money, 
that you're able to do things you weren't able to do before and buy things you weren't able to before and maybe live places you couldn't live before. Don't start redefining it all as necessity and then you still have no more money than you used to. The second dirty little secret about this blessing of more money, stay with me. Here's what you'll find. As soon as you have more money and can do nicer things, live nicer places, go nicer places, you move into a different socioeconomic bracket and you end up rubbing shoulders with and running with people you didn't used to be close to. What do you find out? Oh my goodness, within that economic bracket, there are still some people. Here's what you maybe don't know. There's a bottom to that bracket and a top to that bracket. So you still will see people within that bracket that have more than you do and it's a little nicer than you do and they're still doing things you can't because they're at the top of it and you just arrived in that bracket. And so if you're not careful, as your income increases and your comforts increase, your gratitude doesn't you still just see what you don't have and think you're still behind. And listen to me, you can play this game your whole life and just live frustrated, stressed, stressed, because you start spending more money than you should to try to get at the top of that bracket to have what they have, and then as soon as you go into a new one, you're at the bottom and you see more that you, there's no end to this, folks. There's no end to this. Because of the human heart don't let it happen to you look at verse 8 look at verse 8 and I'll show you what I'm talking about when I say don't redefine luxuries as necessities call them luxuries and thank God for it verse 8 and having food and clothing with these we shall be content yikes pretty basic huh and you say what about shelter is it okay to have a house Paul well here's what Paul's doing Paul is taking a phrase, food and clothing, and he's using it to represent the whole. If you're an English teacher here, it's called a synecdoche. You just speak a part and you're using it to refer to the whole. He's using it as a reference to basic necessities, food and clothing. Jesus did the same thing on the Sermon on the Mount when he said, hey, don't worry about what you're gonna eat, what you're gonna drink, what you're gonna put on your body. Look around how God takes care of the lilies of the field, how he takes care of the birds. You're more valuable than they are. He's gonna take care of you. He says, your father knows that you need these things. Basic necessities, food, clothing, shelter. The danger is that if we're not careful, we're not grateful and we're constantly redefining because there is a tolerance effect, just like with a drug or anything else that you begin to experience in life, there's a tolerance effect on luxury. Do you realize that? As soon as what wasn't yours is now yours regularly, it doesn't satisfy like it used to, and there's this itch, and your eyes look a little up at a bigger luxury, and it just goes on, goes on, goes on, the guy that wrote the article I quoted from, listen, he experienced that with, you know, multimillionaire now. What happened? Listen to what he says. Luxury is an addictive drug. Until we understand this, it has the power to ruin our lives. Also, tolerance to this drug increases with abuse over time. An amount of the drug that was once satisfying starts to not have the desired effect. We find that we need more and more of the substance to feel normal. The problem is that as the U2 lyric goes, you can never get enough 
of what you don't really need. Listen to what he says next. Once you have the Porsche Cayenne Turbo, you're like, I'd be done. I'd never ask for anything again. No, you wouldn't. Lie. He says, once you have the Porsche Cayenne Turbo, you start wishing for a Bentley Bentayga. The more luxury you have, the more luxury you need, but luxury never really satisfies the itch that it promises to scratch. Like an opioid in our brains, luxury locks into our survival receptors. The irony is that purchasing luxury and being dependent on it for our sense of well-being and security leads to us depleting the very resources we actually need for survival. Listen to this closing sentence, how it lines up with the Apostle Paul in the Bible. Deeply enjoying whatever it is you're experiencing right now is ultimate wealth. That's what Paul was talking about. I have learned the human heart has the power to blind you to what you do have and keep you from ever enjoying any of it. And it's always, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And then you're financially stressed and strapped because you've pushed again to get a little more up into that category and oh my goodness, don't do it. And we're gonna see it in the weeks ahead. Make sure you understand it's not a sin to be rich. Look at verses 17 and 18. He acknowledges there's rich people. Abraham was rich. Job was rich. Lydia, in the New Testament, the book of Acts, she was a well-to-do businesswoman. It is not a sin to be rich, but he says, command those who are rich in this present life not to be haughty, don't think it's all about you, and not to trust in those riches, and be ready, ready to do good works, rich in good works, ready to help, ready to give away. See, here's what I would say to you. Regardless of what socioeconomic bracket you think you're in, as Christians, again, what I'm about to say is radical, but we talk about from the Bible, we're supposed to be peculiar people, right? Set apart. What's supposed to be peculiar about us is not that we're such pains to deal with at work and we never get our job done, but we're always walking over to saying to people, your mouth and your cussing offends me. Shut up and do your job. They're lost. Be one of the best workers there. But I tell you what's supposed to be peculiar about us that often Christians don't even get excited about. We don't spend everything God sends us on ourselves. We don't keep doing the bump and jump. Oh, I got a pay increase. Expand the lifestyle. Oh, I'm in a new bracket. Get rid of this house. Get a bigger one. Oh, I'm in a new bracket. Get rid of this level car. Go to better cars so that we're always spending almost everything we take in. That's not peculiar. That's normal. That's what the world does. So here's what my challenge to you. Whatever socioeconomic bracket you're in, as a Christian, we should choose to live at the bottom of our bracket to free up resources to give away and be a blessing to others. In other words, I'm challenging you, there should always be a gospel gap or a grace gap between what you could be doing and how you could be living and what you are doing. Does that make sense? Gap, is there any gap for you? Like I remember our kids, we have five kids, and their faces would be pressed to the van windows as we're going places, especially through our neighborhood, like, why don't we have a jet ski? Why don't we have a boat? Why don't we have a camper? Why don't we go to Disney World? Why don't we eat out every Sunday like all the other families in our church? Shut up, you're blessed, because we give. And I would tell them, 
We could do a jet ski and we could do Disney World and we could eat out every Sunday on the money we give away. But we don't. Because I want to give away significant amounts of money. I don't want to just push it up to the top. And there you, now, don't hear me saying it's a sin to have a jet ski. It's a sin to have a pop-up camper in your driveway. It's even a sin to have one of those that goes up into the next level. Woo. Nope, didn't say that. The question is, after you've bought the camper like that or the jets, is there still a gap between what you're spending on yourself and what you're giving away? There should be a gap. Gap, gospel gap, grace gap. That should be the goal. Stay at the bottom of your bracket so there can be some gap and you're not stressed and strapped and still saying, oh, but we can't give, we can't give, we can't give. You can't give because you didn't plan to give. Let me put it to you this way. Most people fail to ever change because they don't make specific plans for how to change. I don't mean these messages to just be inspirational or convicting. If you don't actually say, what am I gonna do different? And you sit down and try to sort it out. You keep doing what you're doing, you'll keep getting what you're getting. You'll have to sit down and say, over the next 18 months or two years, what are we gonna change? Otherwise, we're, this is just gonna keep going the way it's going. We're gonna have to think and be intentional and make plans. By God's grace, listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He's talking about the same thing. He says, quote, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as ours, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we wish we could do and cannot do because our giving expenditure excludes them. Is there anything you wish you could do? Oh, I'm sure there's tons of things you wish you can do and you just say it's because I don't have enough money. I'm not talking about that. What is it you wish you could do but you say, oh, we can't because we gave away this much money. That money would pay for that, but we give it away. If you can't think of anything, ask God to help you change. 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 Make new plans of how you're gonna live differently. Vicki and I sat down this last year at 54. I was like, I need to sort out, am I okay? Are we gonna be okay? Have we saved enough? Can we retire? I don't wanna be in a Winnebago in the driveway of one of my kids saying, hello, take care of me. I don't wanna be under a park bench. I also don't wanna be the pastor that's a burden to you. You wanna know one of the number one crises that we have in the Evangelical Free Church of America? As I go to a special conference that's just for lead pastors of churches over over a thousand called K-Club. For five years now, they've been harping at us. Do you know what the number one problem is? Senior pastors who have not saved enough money saying, oh, but I need to still work there as the senior pastor two or three more years because we can't retire. What? You're usually the one that's paid the most of any other staff member. You didn't save, you didn't plant, no, they just, expanded their lifestyle, and now whether they have passion to lead or effectiveness to lead, they're begging, saying, you can't ask me to step down. We're not okay. By God's grace, Vicki and I sat down, and we were shocked. We crunched the numbers, and we found, it was, we didn't even know this, we found that we are living on less than 50% of our income. 
The financial planners are shocked too. They don't know what to do with us. Ah, we don't have, we don't have plans for you. We don't have a chart for you. We don't, we don't see you. Now that doesn't, doesn't mean I'm giving away 50%. Don't, but it's because here's, here's what's happening. We're only living on a little less than 50% as far as what's it take to feed us, to do what we need to do. And we're living a good life. Don't feel bad for me. I buy better wines than I used to. We eat out more than we used to. I buy nicer shirts than I used to. Again, I, I want you to put you at rest. We're doing nicer things and at the same time still have this excess, which means, you're like, Brad, what are you doing with that other 50%? Saving for emergencies and opportunities. Folks, Christmas is not an emergency. It happens every December. <laughs> you could plan for that, right? Property tax is not an emergency. It happens every year. Kenton County sends me that. Fort Wright sends me that. The IRS wants theirs. Kentucky wants theirs. Like, oh, it's time to pay taxes. Crisis. Plan for it. Reduce your, the car's gonna break. There's no car that doesn't break. The hot, I could go on and on. So we've got money for emergencies and opportunities. Then we're able to invest significantly in retirement so that I hope when the church looks at me and says, you're not effective, I can say, okay, I'm sorry to hear that, that's hard, but I don't have to say, no, you can't ask me to step down. We need to work through, no, so I don't wanna be a burden to you, so we're putting money in retirement, we're putting money in savings for emergency opportunities, we're able to give away large amounts of money to our church budget, to people who need help with a house payment or a medical bill or taking a missions trip, and emissions endeavors outside the walls of our church, and I'm able to allocate large amounts of money to help my kids get through college debt-free. I've got three kids that are gonna be in college this fall. That is expensive, but I planned for it. I stayed in the same house so that it would be paid for by now so that I would be freed up with greater resources. If back in 1996, if, if when we hit the spot that I was making twice what the church chose to pay me in 1996 when I first came, if we'd said, oh my word, get out of this house and buy a big one out by the church, this would be a different story. If we'd said, oh, start driving super nice cars that have expensive monthly payments, that come with expensive insurance premiums, that come with expensive property tax. When I get my property tax bill for my cars, it's like hilarious, $43 because they think it's like crap on wheels. It's like, it's seven years old. It's a nice car, it's Corolla Sport, charcoal gray, I'm loving it. But in their mind, this is like, what? Here, $43. Everything's cheaper because I'm living simply buying used, nice used cars and stayed in the same $137,000 house that we bought in 1996. Because we didn't bump and jump now there's this gap to help my kids get through college debt-free, to give away large amounts of money, to save for opportunities and emergencies, and to put money in retirement. But all that came at a cost. We were happy to do it, and I'm grateful I have a wife who let me do it. We had to say no to some things. We had to make choices and say, all right, let's be careful here. Let's, let's think about this. And I know this may be depressing and discouraging to some of you if you're in a mess I still would say to you, the best time to start doing about it, something about it is today. Today, just say, all right, this is gonna take us a while. What do you need to do to get off this? It's just, it's never gonna end, my friend. You feel stressed, you feel strapped, you say you can't give, make plans. For how, if you need to sit down with a financial planner to get help, do it. Say, we don't wanna live like this the rest of our 
lives. Number three, recognize that everything you have is a given, not a gotten. It's not what you did. It's a given, not a gotten. Look at verse seven. For we brought how much? Say it louder. Nothing Nothing into this world. And it is certain that we can carry what? Nothing. Nothing out. Everything you have is a given, not a gotten. It's the same thing that Job was saying in Job 121 when he lost it all, his businesses, his kids, and he said, naked I came from the Lord, and naked I shall return. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name. Job recognized it was never his to begin with. It's not that he's so savvy, he's so skilled, he's so sharp. Now, don't hear me saying if you've got a business and you've done well, you had nothing to do with that. I'm sure you worked hard, but always acknowledge there are people that have worked just as hard and it didn't happen. Everything you have is a given, not a gotten. And and so that we enter this world naked, we exit naked in many ways, and everything in between is on loan. It's on loan. We're talking about how to cultivate contentment, how to get off the rat race of stress and strapped with money. Picture this. When we die, Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed unto men and women once to die. You're going to die. Money won't change that. Your cars won't change that. Once to die, and then the judgment. Picture waves of people standing before God, completely stripped of American Express, Delta Medallion, Hilton Reservations, financial portfolios, designer clothes, everybody on the same level ground. Executives, working class, politicians, playboys, millionaires, and missionary kids, all with nothing to cling to for security except those who have put their trust in Christ and have the riches of Christ that's been applied to their account and an eternal inheritance that cannot be shaken or taken. I have permission to read this from a young couple in our church family who got excited about this and they're not the only ones. Just in December, my wife and I ran into a couple here in our church at Graders and we recognized them and went over and chatted it up with their young girls and and they mentioned that they were in the middle of moving boxes everywhere. And I didn't ask why. When I got back to the table, Vicky said, well, why? I said, I don't know. But then I ran into them on Sunday and said, hey, it was really fun running into you guys, talking to you. And he says to me, you know why we're moving? I don't know. He said, because we've actually heard your messages that have challenged us to be different. And so we are actually downsizing and selling that big home and downsizing so that we can live the way we think God would have us live. I was like, oh my word, somebody doing what I say from God's word. I'm so encouraged, oh God. Yes, people do it, people do it, and more people should. Listen to what she says. We cannot thank you enough for being bold in the way you teach the gospel and for challenging us to submit to the plans of God for us and to be a peculiar people. Since our decision to sell the big home and scale down our lifestyle, our lives feel as if they've been turned upside down. But in the midst of everything that has happened and is going on, there's peace. 
one that passes understanding. It's amazing that we can be okay with the fact that we had to take $17,000 less for our home than what we paid for it, but we understand now that it really never was ours anyway, so why get caught up in the details this world calls important? Another turning point in this financial journey was the sudden death of my nephew in August at the young age of 23. Nothing quite like death and funerals to clarify what's most important. She says, it was so painful to watch our family stand beside the casket of a loved one and say goodbye, and God used that night to push me over the edge. I experienced something that night at the visitation that I know was of God. As I stood there looking at my 23-year-old nephew in that casket, I realized like never before that you take nothing out of this life with you. But we live in a world where material things consume us. Yet all those things were left behind and none of them made any impact on where my nephew would spend eternity. Our long-term goals now are not to get back into a large home in an upscale neighborhood, but to stay where God is leading us now so we can provide opportunities to many other people. Again, let me stick in here. If you have a large home, I'm not asking you to feel miserable. You may have a large home and you still are living gospel gap, gospel grace. But if you have some huge home only because you're spending everything God sends your way to do it, feel bad. (laughs) God is leading us now so that we can provide opportunities to many other people. The lower our own expenses are, the more we can do for other people. And we feel that this is a great way to witness to what God has already done for us. Christians should be the biggest givers because God gave us his son. It's all about give. For God so loved the world that he what? Emoted in the heavenlies. Felt bad for you and said, I hope you work that out. That God what? Gave. 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 What do you have when you stand before God and you will? What do you have? I'm not asking what's parked in your driveway or what's in your bank account. I'm talking about will you have anything of eternal value or will you be spiritually bankrupt? The only people that will have anything will be those who have the riches in Christ because you put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, listen to me, he will give you a robe of righteousness that he bought with his own blood that money can't buy. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you get a security that money cannot give you. You get the peace of God. You get forgiveness of sins. You get security in something and someone who cannot be taken from you. Money can take wings and disappear. You'll have security like never before, peace like never before, forgiveness, joy, and it's all found in Jesus Christ. Christ, what do you have today? Do you have the riches of Christ? And do you have the robe of righteousness that he bought for us? Oh God, thank you. Thank you for your word that challenges us and reorients us in so many ways, in so many areas. And we, though it's painful, we are so glad that we're not left saying, I wish the Bible said something about money because man, this seems like a big mess. This seems challenging. I don't know what to do. God, thank you that you talk to us about money. Oh, help us to be peculiar 
people so that we live gospel gap, grace gap, giving away and getting in on what you are doing and being freed up from the stress of money and being strapped. And oh God, thank you for the robe of righteousness that Jesus bought us when he paid for our sins and satisfied your wrath. We give you thanks in his name, amen.